The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, today is February 15th, 2023, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to our first lecture of the 2023 season uh, of the Perspectives Military History Lecture Series. We welcome listeners from all over the world on our live stream feed. For those of you listening to the feed tonight, unfortunately, the uh, chat room is down, so you're not going to be able to participate in the question and answer. However, please do uh, tune in, uh, you know, stay on for, for a great program tonight, and make sure you come back to the next lecture uh, online so you can ask questions then. Not to this speaker, but to the next one. Um, so my name is Carl Warner, and I have the privilege to head up uh, the USAHEX Education Information Team. Tonight, I have the honor of representing the whole of the USAHEX uh, leadership and team by introducing tonight's speaker. And tonight's lecture means a lot to me, uh, as our speaker is a very close friend and classmate of mine uh, from a million years ago at West Virginia University in grad school. Jared Frederick has been on the forefront of political and digital history, of the political, I'm sorry, public in digital history field, uh, showing all of us in this business uh, what right looks like when we engage audiences in the 21st century. He's been publishing uh, books literally since he was a freshman in high school. He has repeatedly appeared on both cable and national television uh, as a subject matter expert on both World War II uh, and the American Civil War. He's post hosted popular YouTube history series. He's an accomplished artist, uh, and he is currently working on his PhD at Penn State. He's truly a man of many talents, and we are excited to have him here tonight to dig into the art of leadership and the meaning of command. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Professor Jared Frederick. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out to my presentation this evening. One thing that I would like us to think about as we embark on this conversation this evening is to ponder what exactly is leadership. Each and every one of us would have our own distinctive definition of it. When we think about the two gentlemen who we see on the screen, Dick Winters and Ronald Spears, I think many would define them, in the case of Winters, as one of fatherly paternalism. That is often how he interacted with his men. On the other hand, we have Ronald Spears, who many people would gauge in the category of cold calculation in regard to his leadership. What we are going to do this evening is that I'm going to try to balance both of their military careers and their outlooks to present two unique yet distinct interpretations of what leadership is. And I'd like to start off with Dick Winters, and I'd like to draw another comparison of sorts. Because in many ways, how I envision him, he is in some regards the Joshua Chamberlain of the Second World War. And the reason why I think that way is because both of these men were officers at a regimental level, uh, they are figures who otherwise perhaps wouldn't be covered in your traditional history textbook, but it was because of popular books that they entered the pantheon of public imagination. Those incredibly successful books, in turn, are adapted into wildly successful Hollywood depictions. And as a result, one could make the argument that they are the most famous fighting men of the respective wars that they fought in, the American Civil War and the Second World War. And what follows that then is a process of commemoration and memorialization. And for that reason, I think it's very fitting in some regards to think of Dick Winters as the Joshua Chamberlain of the Second World War. That brings us to this character, 
or at least how we remember him on the small screen. That is Ronald Spears. He is remembered in a very different light. In some ways, he is a mystery. He's an enigma. He's a, a rather shadowy character, even in the eyes of some of the men who served under him. Uh, and here, too, he has entered the realm of popular culture as well, uh, so much so to the extent that he is not only depicted in Hollywood, and it leads to these questions of, did he actually kill German prisoners of war on D-Day and beyond? And he has this rather grim celebrity as a result, so much so that if you go online, you can find all sorts of merchandise. And uh, this one is rather darkly entitled, Lieutenant Spears' Last Stop Smoke Shop. <laughs> all right, so uh, you aren't going to find t-shirts like that in regard to Dick Winters. Uh, and then, of course, there's a whole other realm of internet celebrity as well, to the extent that he's even become the subject of an internet meme. And on the left, we have uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Uh, but on the right, we have, well, the Lord of the Rings, if Lieutenant Spears had been the ring bearer, uh, suggesting that it would be a dramatically shorter story. And, and so we have to wonder, uh, what prompts these sorts of memories? Why do people remember and commemorate these two men in the way that we do? Hollywood is a big part of the answer, uh, but so too is their own biographies and how they themselves interacted with the past. In, uh, for just a, a brief point of, of context here in regard to geography, as we consider the big picture, it's rather astounding when we think of the scope that World War II soldiers, that American GIs fought within. Now, one of my very good friends served a, a tour of duty in Iraq, and he saw a lot of very vicious fighting in the Ramadi area. Uh, but everything that he witnessed and everything that he experienced was in uh, the confines of a, a few dozen square miles. By contrast, when we think about the paratroopers, the 101st Airborne Division, they were in six countries in 11 months. It is unparalleled in United States military history. Uh, and therefore, we have a very broad canvas to think about in regard to our story. We are going to start off that story, though, uh, a little bit at least, in the pre-war years. And on the screen here, is the first ever photograph of Ronald Spears in a military uniform when he was in the equivalent of a junior ROTC program. And as he reflected later in life, my first experience with the military was in high school. Close order drill was taught by two regular army officers. I selected infantry training because my mathematics was not good enough for artillery. Which turned, out for me, which turned out well for me because, to me, the infantry is the soul of the army. So I can relate to him in that regard because, as I always joke with my students, I became a historian because I couldn't do math. So I can relate to him most definitely in that regard. As we get into the year 1942, just a, a month and a half after America has entered the Second World War, uh, by this point, uh, Dick Winters had been in the United States Army for several months. He had actually joined the peacetime army because he thought that he was going to be conscripted. And so he thought, I'm going to do my year of mandatory military service, and then I'm going to be able to move on with my life. He never had the ambition of rising through the ranks, especially in the quick manner in which he did in the years to come. And while he was in training at Camp Croft, South Carolina, uh, he met the young man who we see on the right-hand side of the screen here, uh, named Tresta Trenta, who Winters affectionately called Trent. And Winters found out that both of these men were from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, they lived a 25-minute walk from one another. They had never once before met each other when they were in their hometowns, yet they became bunkmates when they were in Camp Croft. And in one of his letters to his pen pal, Dieta Alman, uh, Winters wrote in January 1942, Trent's dug up that old desire of his to be a member of the parachute troops. I've been telling him he's nuts, for that's a suicide outfit. 
Here too, this is not something that we might expect Dick Winters to be saying, once more underscoring that he never had the ambitions of becoming this tough-as-nails paratrooper. He thought that that was going to mean a death sentence in the broad scheme of things. But ultimately, the reason why he opted to join the paratroops is because he wanted to put himself to the ultimate physical test. He wanted to prove to himself that he was capable of overcoming the toughest physical challenges in the United States Army. And that is what motivated him to become a paratrooper. And of course, for both of these men, even though they are in different companies at this time, their training eventually takes them to this vaunted landmark in rural Georgia, and that is Camp Tekoa. And of course, the famous mantra of their time at Camp Tekoa was three miles up, three miles down uh, for the imposing Mount Curahi, which we see here in the background. One of Spears's fellow comrades, one of his subordinates, a paratrooper by the name of Joe Reed, reflected upon Lieutenant Spears's competitive nature as they were running Curahi. And he said, on one particular day, Spears and I happened to be running Curahee at the same time. I realized right away that Spears wanted to race me. I kept looking back, and there he was. I got to the top and quickly proceeded back down the mountain. Spears was still behind me. I crossed the finish line and felt great. Spears followed a short time later, coughing and wheezing from his effort to keep up with me. After catching his breath, he gave me a respectful nod with his head and a smile and went on his way. I'll never forget that day. So here from the outset, Spears' subordinates realized that he was a very competitive individual. He had every intention of uh, being on par with them from a physical standpoint. As we take a look at the artifact here in the lower left-hand side of the screen, this is in the collection of my co-author, Eric Dorr, who is the curator of the Gettysburg Museum of History. This is perhaps my favorite Dick Winters artifact. It is a book that he bought at the Post Exchange 80 years ago this week at Fort Benning. And it is essentially a manual which is entitled Infantry in Battle. And what I love most about this artifact is his notes that he wrote inside. He underlined things. He underscored certain passages. He wrote in the margins. And when you page through that book, you can see where he applied certain principles that he read of on the fields of battle in Europe in the months and years to come. And so when so many other officers were making use of leave and they were going and hitting the town and going to see a movie or a social dance or something along those lines, Winters was staying back on base and he was poring over this book to the extent that it got incredibly dog-eared as a result. So this too tells us something about his thinking and his state of mental preparation. Once the division moves to England and they settle in the Aldbourne area, uh, this is uh, late 1943, early 1944, uh, an ongoing personal feud between Spears and his company commander, Herbert Sobel, intensifies. And throughout this entire process, Winters had the suspicion that in his words, Sobel was trying to gig him, that he was trying to trip him up. Sobel sensed that Winters was a more popular officer and that undermined his own authority. And so the manner in which Sobel tried to sabotage Winters comes that October, and it ultimately culminates in court-martial proceedings that are brought against Winters for purportedly being 15 minutes late for a latrine inspection, which he was supposed to conduct. And Winters, in many ways, turned the tables on Sobel. He was not about to walk into this trap, and it became something of a controversy within the battalion as a consequence, so much so to the extent that the battalion commander, Robert Strayer, had to intervene and, in so many words, sided with Winters as a result. And it is shortly thereafter, after this very toxic dynamic emerged within the company, 
that Sobel was rotated out uh, away from the beloved Easy Company that he helped to mold in the first place. Uh, and we can also do a little bit of interpretation in regard to the photograph of Sobel on the right. This was a photograph that Winters sent home to his family, and you'll notice that Winters drew a mustache on Sobel's face. Uh, and so that was about as, uh, about as antagonistic as he was going to get in his letters home. And so you can read between the lines here in that regard, and you can definitely sense that there is no love loss between these two men. All of this, of course, is preparation for that night of night on the day of days, June 6, 1944, in which over 13,000 paratroopers from the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions crowded into over 1,000 aircraft, several thousand more paratroopers and glidermen from other allied nations participated as well, and Winters immediately sensed the historical significance of this moment. So much so to the extent that after he survived the opening phases of the Normandy invasion, he typed out a six-page D-Day diary. He did not have you know, illusions of grandeur. He was not anticipating on writing a book or being the subject of a movie. This was a personal record that he kept for he himself because he recognized how momentous this event was that he had participated in. And for part of that D-Day diary, he writes it almost as if it is in real time. That is how vivid the memory was to him. And he writes of June 6, 1944, in the early morning hours, it's 1.10, red light, 10 minutes out, all's quiet. Ah, there's some anti-aircraft fire, blue, green, red tracers coming up to meet us. Gee, it seems to come slow. They're pretty wild with it. There, it looks like they might have hit one of our planes. Look out, they're after us now. And when you're reading this, it offers this just sense of immersion. You, know, you can really uh, imagine him uh, experiencing this, uh, almost as if he was writing it in real time. Not too far away is stick number 62, in which Ronald Spears, who is in dog company at this point, uh, has about a dozen or so men within his aircraft. And on either side of his painting here, uh, we see respectively the youngest and oldest paratroopers who were aboard his aircraft. On the left, we have a 19-year-old, really tall kid from Ohio, whose name was Art Jumbo DiMarzio, a good nickname right there. And over on the right, we have Floyd Buddy Corrington, who was actually a few years Spears' senior. Uh, these three men land in a small village area just about two miles north of the all-important crossroads town of San Mary Glees. And after they uh, assemble their equipment, after they start moving down the road, they suddenly hear voices approaching from the coming direction. They recognize soon thereafter that these are German voices. They can hear their hobnail boots crunching on the gravel coming down the road. The three men immediately lurch into a ditch. They conceal themselves in the shadows. The three Germans who appear, they come down the road, the paratroopers jump them. Not a shot is fired. It is a complete surprise. And the reason that they do not kill them in that instant is because they wanted to get their bearings. They wanted to see if they could open a line of communication and get some intelligence off of them. As soon as they did so, Spears turned to these other two men under his command, and he said the very grim words, we can't take them with us. And at that moment, they realized what they had to do. There was no capacity for them to take prisoners. They had to move on to their next, next objective. There were no stockades. There were no military police. Moving prisoners through this volatile countryside that was engulfed in combat, it would jeopardize both them and their mission. And as Spears later recalled, the... Three men were lined up. The American paratroopers thus pulled the triggers. 
Blood was now on their hands. This was their, their first taste of encountering the enemy, and it was certainly up close and personal. When we think about what the Normandy landscape looked like in that hour, we only need to take a look at these photographs to understand that there was little inducement for paratroopers to be taking prisoners in the first place. As we take a look at the photograph on the right, this is what paratroopers were seeing of their brethren around every corner within hedgerow country. Their buddies, their comrades, who were in some cases dead when they hit the ground. Paratroopers thus set out to exact a fierce vengeance upon any German soldier that they encountered. And the photograph that we see in the background is very macabre evidence of that being inflicted. And here, too, we can do some analysis to get a sense of the scene that is unfolding. On the belt of that German Fallschirmjäger soldier, who we see in the background, is a scabbard of an American knife. And presumably, he took that off of a dead American GI. When American soldiers thereafter encounter that same German. Perhaps they took him prisoner beforehand. They see that scabbard on his belt, and then they use that same knife to take his own life, which we can see lodged in his throat. We can also see a photograph, perhaps a photograph that was in that German soldier's pocket, left there on top of his face, perhaps as a dark calling card of sorts. This was the nature of combat in the earliest hours of June 6, 1944. It was an absolute whirlwind, and as many historians have acknowledged, it was some of the fiercest combat that was ever seen in the entirety of the Second World War. It was a knock em down, drag em out, incredibly close encounter brawl, and these photographs are most certainly a testament to that. Not too far away is where Dick Winters lands, and this too is another excerpt from his D-Day diary. And one of the things that he recalls most vividly were the church bells of St. Mary Glees ringing in the distance. And on this point, he says, those church bells weren't tolling a request for us to come to church, but an alarm to all the countryside that we'd arrived. What followed, of course, is history, but it sure gave me a funny feeling. Machine gun fire and rifle fire didn't scare me, but those bells, being all alone with only a knife, gave me a feeling of being hunted down by a pack of wolves. And in this brief excerpt, we get a sense, a brief glimpse, into some of Dick Winters' vulnerability, something that he will continue to expose to a much greater extent as the war continues to inflict its psychological toll. In the coming hours, both Spears and Winters will become engaged in one of the very iconic firefights that we see happening on D-Day. And this one takes place a few miles inland from Utah Beach, which we see in the far distance, coincidentally where my own grandfather was landing with the 4th Infantry Division at this same hour. And we can see how men from Easy Company under the command of Lieutenant Winters at this given moment, they very much used the terrain to their advantage. They moved down the tree lines, they pivoted, and they did so to decommission four 105-millimeter artillery pieces that had the potential of raining down fearful destruction on those troops on Utah Beach. And in domino, stepping stone fashion, one by one, Hugging this hedgerow as they move down the line, Winters and his men take out three of those four guns. And within his D-Day diary, he later drew out a sketch, a rough map, which we can see here in the lower left-hand corner. Uh, this, of course, is famously depicted in the series Band of Brothers, and it takes up perhaps 15 or 20 minutes of the show. In actuality, however, it was close to a three-hour fight. It was incredibly prolonged. Winners and his men had expended much of their ammunition. And perhaps an hour and a half, two hours into the fight is when Spears 
and perhaps uh, six to 12 men from dog and fox companies within the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment arrive on the scene with additional ammunition. Spears turns to Winters and he says, what else needs to be done here? Winters points down the hedgerow and he says, there's a fourth gun down there that still needs to be taken out. And almost without any hesitation, Spears lunges into the fight, for a time jumping out into the open, exposing himself. And as he is barreling down onto the fourth gun, the German soldiers are fleeing it and they leave him a nasty surprise as they are departing. As soon as Spears jumps in to that gun emplacement, he finds an enemy grenade there on the ground right in front of him. He tries to kick it out of the trench. It bounces off the opposite wall and it detonates just feet away from him. Amazingly, he survives this unscathed. This is a man who truly has nine lives and he just about expends all of them throughout the Second World War. But one of his fellow paratroopers, a, a, an enlisted man by the name of Ray Taylor, he noticed that the forefoot of Spears' jump boot was smoking as a result of having kicked the grenade away. And there was this uh, rather uh, comedic scene of Spears stomping out his boot, uh, book, uh, a boot rather, uh, as uh, he barely survived this encounter with an enemy grenade. Uh, so that was uh, among several of his nine lives that he expended throughout the war. As we get into the early hours of June 7th. This is where we get into another one of the fabled mysteries or controversies about Spears. One of the other questions that I am often asked is, did he kill one of his own men? And in order to understand what happens, we need to set the stage a little bit. Within his platoon was a replacement sergeant who had too heavily liberated some French Calvados, some uh, alcoholic cider. And this sergeant had become belligerent. He was openly defying Spears. He goes to reach for his weapon. Spears yells out to this sergeant, if you're going to raise that weapon, you better be prepared to use it. And unfortunately for that non-commissioned officer, that is exactly what he did. And the two men raised their Thompson submachine guns at one another at practically the same moment. And Spears sent a burst of submachine gun fire into one of his own subordinates. How this is often, whoop, the light's going out. The full thematic effect here for nighttime. <laughs> it's early morning hours, June 7th. Immersive qualities here at AHEC. Good job, Carl. <laughs> how it is often depicted and how it is reported in a lot of other books and films is that this was a, a sergeant who refused to move forward. He refused to obey Spears' command in a combat situation. In reality, it was an act of self-defense. And that is how Spears' company commander immediately judged the situation. However, that same week, Spears' commander is killed in combat. Spears never received his day in court to fully clear his record of the matter. And as a result, it becomes this grim mystery, this fabled legend within Easy Company, even as the war is still ongoing. But as Spears himself later confessed to Winters in some of their post-war correspondence in 1991, this is what he had to say. The platoon saw it all happen without batting an eye. In his private correspondence, this is something that Spears openly admitted to doing. And as I said, it was done as an act of self-defense. All that said, we cannot entirely view Ronald Spears as this uh, cold killer because uh, as he later uh, recalled to author Stephen Ambrose, why soldiers fight and die as they do seems clear to me. They do it for the small unit, the squad or the platoon. The infantry soldier is aware of the regiment, the division or the democracy he belongs to. 
but his fighting spirit and good morale is caused and nurtured by his buddies, the guys in the foxholes with him. That is the reason men persevere in battle. And indeed, these are the sorts of stories that we can see in any American conflict when you come to a place like AHEC or another military museum. Spears is talking about the universal traits that bind combatants together when the times are tough. And so there is a degree of sentimentality and emotion that he likewise expresses in a lot of his post-war correspondence. The other ironic thing about Spears, however, though, is that his lethality was no secret. His family, his friends, his neighbors back home, they knew about it. And we can look at this Boston area newspaper from the summer of 1944 that testifies to this exact fact. Not only were his exploits of killing 13 Nazis in the first 24 hours of D-Day, not only did it show up in newspapers, but he openly admitted it on national radio. He was interviewed for a segment of the popular program, the Victory Parade of Spotlight Bands, which was hosted by the Coca-Cola Company. I've yet to find that original radio broadcast, but I would love to find it someday. But within this article, it describes his radio interview and the exploits described therein. So, it was no secret that Ronald Spears had accumulated quite a tally on D-Day and beyond. It also creates this imaginative Ronald Spears, which was likewise ever-present within his outfit as the war was ongoing. One of the stories that emerged about his interaction with the ill-fated German prisoners is that he offered them cigarettes beforehand. And indeed, some of Spears' men did offer the men cigarettes as a means of trying to open up lines of communication with them, try to get them to open up to share information and intelligence. Spears himself, though, did not do this. Why? Because Ronald Spears did not smoke. Uh, and so uh, that there, too, is one of uh, the mythical elements that has taken on a life of its own, as we see depicted here in this fan artwork. In the days that followed, though, things were not going to ease up for the 101st Airborne Division. Their next target was Carentan, another all-important crossroads community that was absolutely vital to link up the American beachheads on Omaha and Utah. And in regard to both Winters and Spears, this was a moment that they most definitely shined. This is where they were really putting their leadership principles to maximum effect. And uh, the 101st Airborne Division was quite capable when it came to matters of public relations. Whenever somebody was promoted or received a citation, they made sure that that soldier's hometown newspaper heard about it. And sure enough, here in the Lancaster New Era, just about two weeks after the fact, uh, this is an article that describes what Winters did on that day and why he received such praise from superiors. He went to the front lines when the SS troops counterattacked Carentan the night of June 12th and the morning of June 13th. He was commended by his CO, his com uh, commanding officer, the dispatch stated. It was... Uh, he, who said that Lieutenant Winters' personal bravery and knowledge that held a crucial position when the going was really tough. And Winters is going to be rewarded accordingly for that bravery that he exhibits on June 13th. And he also was able to gather a very unique war trophy from this conflict uh, at that hour, uh, including a pair of Fallschirmjäger gloves. Uh, which we can see him wearing at a later point in his life at his Fredericksburg, Pennsylvania uh, farm. Uh, he, very much evoking that hang-tough attitude there in that photograph. Uh, and so uh, Winters, too, like many other paratroopers, uh, certainly brought his share of war trophies home with him. In that same conflict, in that same encounter, as the German soldiers were counterattacking the paratroopers, who were encircling Carentan. Spears finds himself perhaps in the most desperate confrontation of his life. And uh, fortunately for us, 
uh, he wrote a 36-page account of this particular battle a number of years later when he was up for promotion. And of this moment, he said, the enemy counterattacked had stopped much of the American regiments in its tracks. At that moment, a heavy mortar and artillery concentration landed in the area. One of the platoon riflemen was struck by this fire and lay moaning on the ground. As I crossed the waist-high wall, I looked back up the hill and saw German soldiers running along the hedgerow we had just left. A shower of grenades was received from the west, where the hedgerow blocked our observation. Now, to illustrate this encounter a little bit further, I was able to find the exact farmstead on Google Maps. And uh, some of the terrain has changed. Part of the property has uh, been encroached upon by modern development. Uh, but the farm complex that we see in the black and white photo still stands today. Now, here in mid-June of 1944, that farmhouse was on fire. And Spears's platoon, as this German counterattack was moving forward, sought refuge within the waist-high stone wall of that farmhouse complex. The Germans were throwing in egg grenades into the courtyard. Spears himself is wounded. Shrapnel goes in his back and his thigh. A number of his men have been killed or grievously wounded. And perhaps for a, a split second, Spears is thinking, this is it. We're going to be surrounded within this courtyard, and there's going to be no way to escape. But in the corner of the courtyard, he sees a small gully, a small ditch emanating out of the property. And he thinks, that is our exit out. And so with that partial cover and concealment, he is able to move his surviving platoon mates back to the main company line, and they are able to live on to fight again another day, most of them at least. Unfortunately, one of the young paratroopers who was wounded in this encounter, uh, we see right here, his name was John Dielsey. He was uh, wounded during the firefight itself, and Spears' platoon left him behind. They left him for dead, believing that he was KIA, when in fact he was still alive. And as he was still alive, German soldiers who thereafter moved into the courtyard found him and bayoneted him where he lay. He survived that as well. And through some miracle, by some means, he was able to crawl out of that courtyard back to the company line where shortly thereafter some medics discovered him in a rather pitiful state. But miraculously, he was able to survive those wounds. He lived another 40 years, but he was very much haunted by the invisible wounds of war. And as one of his comrades uh, later admitted, whenever there was a thunderstorm, John D. Elsie would take cover under his dining room table. Whenever he heard that, it immediately brought him back to the sound of the guns and reminiscences of these near-fatal episodes of combat in which he was involved. For his actions at Carentan, uh, Winters was ultimately awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And one of the photographs that is featured in our book, which I absolutely love, a, a rare one that I had not seen before we started on this endeavor, is a photograph that features not only Winters, who we can see in the yellow circle, but on the far left of the line, we see the division commander, Maxwell Taylor, and also Omar Bradley up on the stage, who personally pinned the Distinguished Service Cross on Winters' chest. Uh, and he wrote to his pen pal that day, Dieta Alman, your prayers for my safety certainly helped a lot more than you know. I don't know what else could pull a fellow through. So a very moment, a, a, a moment that made winners exceedingly proud here on July 2nd, 1944. In the weeks that followed, but as we get into late July of 1944, the 101st Airborne Division was taken off the line. They had some rest and rebuilding time in England, but by September 17th, 1944, they were going to be back in the thick of it. And they would be participating in Operation Market Garden. Uh, an operation that sought to bring the war to an end by 1945, by New Year's 1945, 
It all depended on time, precision, coordination, and when all of that falls apart, it spells disaster. With a good sense for his own survival, uh, Winters was never one to advertise that he was an officer in the combat zone. He often did not have any bars on his helmets. He didn't have the white stripe going down the back. He often did not wear his rank on his lapels. He kept his binoculars tucked away in his M43 jacket. And instead of wearing a map case, which was you know, a, a good designator that might be a magnet for a German sniper, he instead had this custom-made zipper pocket sewn into the back of his jacket where he could store his maps and other important documents. And so Winters was all about blending in with everybody else um, because he didn't want to be targeted because of his rank. During uh, their time in Holland, in, in the weeks after uh, the, the, the worst failures of Operation Market Garden become apparent, uh, there was perhaps no greater moment that remained in Winters' mind than his attack on the crossroads overlapping a dike outside of Randwick, Holland on October 5th, 1944. This is when he and essentially a platoon of men barrel into two companies of German soldiers, catch them off guard, and despite being vastly outnumbered, are able to win the day. This was a moment seared into his memory, as he later recollected here. And jumping up on the dike, there's this young German soldier right across the road from me. He was directly on the other side of that road from me, just about two steps away, because it was a narrow road coming up from the river. I came up directly across from him, eyeball to eyeball, and as he was just as shocked as could be, I leveled off at him. The thing I can never forget was that he smiled. And as he smiled, I shot him. This was a memory that in many ways haunted Winters the remainder of his life. He had taken men's lives before, but never in such a close quarter fashion. And to have his opponent realizing that he had been outsmarted by this approaching American officer, the fact that he smiles right before he loses his life, was something that winners could never forget. The following month, Spears goes through an equally traumatic moment, uh, one that will earn him the silver star in the process. And uh, this quote here is a little bit lengthy, but it's worth reading. This is his citation for that award. Um, and this is just a few days after, not the following month, excuse me. Uh, and it says, on 10 October 1944, in the vicinity of Randwick, Holland, he, Spears, was assigned the mission of leading a patrol to the bank of the Niederrhein River to determine enemy activity across the river. He reached the riverbank with his patrol in the early hours of the morning and spent the entire day observing across the river. After dark, he voluntarily swam to the opposite bank alone, where he found himself in unknown enemy territory. He located an enemy machine gun nest, an enemy headquarters, and other enemy activity near the town of Wigenogen. He secured a rubber boat left by the enemy and returned to the friendly side of the river with this information. While returning to his own lines, he was wounded by fire from an enemy machine gun. Lieutenant Spears was the first to cross the Niederrhein River in this vicinity, and in so doing, he paved the way for other patrols to make similar reconnaissance. So here was a man who swam across the Rhine River all by himself to gather intelligence. He's wounded in the rear end in the process, still able to get across, still delivers that intelligence, and paves the way for so many others to do work in that area as well. Uh, it's cued very well with the lights going off for our nighttime scenes here. It works very well. Uh, so once again, as we get into November and December of 1944, the division once again had a little bit of rest. And we see Winters here among a group of US officers in front of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, a well-deserved break. Uh, back in Camp Mormelon in rural France, the division was pairing for, uh, preparing for a uh, Christmas Day match that was going to become known as the Champagne Bowl. 
But ultimately, that football game never happened because the Battle of the Bulge commences. And this is another sublime moment in Winters' leadership. And there's so many anecdotes that we can take from his time on the outskirts of Bastogne as he and his men are standing off these repetitive assaults. But a, a simple story that stands out to me is that he, he naturally, as, as his men are lining up to, to get their rations and their food, he, of course, lets them eat first. But he said that he made the tactical error of letting men go through twice for seconds before he himself got food. And so he said, many days I only had five white beans and a cup of cold broth. And so the war is very much grating down on him in this moment. And in some of the latter stages of the Battle of the Bulge, we likewise see Spears' sublime moment of gallantry as well, as he is uh, sent in to relieve the inefficient lieutenant named Norman Dyke. Winters sends him in to take the attack on into town. And uh, Spears didn't remember too much of this iconic moment that is featured in the miniseries. But he said, I remember the terrain outside Foy, broad open fields where any enemy movement, where any movement brought fire. A German 88 artillery piece was fired at me when I crossed the open area alone. That impressed me. And here, too, he perhaps used some of his additional nine lives. As we uh, start to get near the end of our presentation here, and we uh, likewise near the end of the war, in a lot of his letters, Winters likewise opens up a little bit more and shows some of that vulnerability. And he uh, wrote to Dieta Allman that January, since I am in the army, I daydream of fights, fighting Jerry's, outmaneuvering, outthinking, outshooting, and outfighting them. But they're tense, cruel, hard, and bitter. They consist of about 80% of my dreams, but they pay off. You'd be surprised. Sometimes when you dream over and over a problem, you get the solution. Winters was an individual who did have challenges with post-traumatic stress when he came home from the war and during the war itself. But in this brief excerpt here, we get the sense that he's an individual who is always looking for the silver lining, no matter how dark the situation that he finds himself in. And as we get to April of 1945, here they are, of course, at Burgess Garden, basking in the fruits of victory. But in this hour, Winters was pondering the potential of going to the Pacific. And in fact, he put in a request to have an early transfer to the Pacific. And the reason why he did so, he explained very articulately and heroically as well. And he explained, how can I sit back and see, other men, uh, see others take out men and get them killed because they don't know. They don't have it. Maybe I'll get hurt or killed for my trouble, but so what if I can make it possible for many others to go home? Their mothers want them too, the same as me. What else can I do and still hold my own self-respect as an officer and a man? That is leadership. This is a man who had the opportunity to possibly go home, be rotated through the states. He says, no, I want to go to the Pacific, and I want to go now because I want to help save American lives in the process. This is what, in many cases, set him apart from so many other officers. And here we see Spears in the famous group photograph that was taken in Austria of Easy Company in the spring, perhaps summer of 1945. We see him circled in yellow. And unfortunately, as of this past July, Bradford Freeman, the last surviving member of Easy Company, he's the young man holding up the top flap of the company guide on in this photograph. Uh, he was the last of the band of brothers. Every man in this photograph is gone. He was the last of them. Uh, which makes it all the more important for, our, for us to reflect upon their stories all of these years later. Uh, in the regimental yearbook, we can also read between the lines here a bit as well, uh, because you can see all the company commanders. They're dressed to the nines. They're in their Ike jackets. What about Spears, though? 
Nope. Uh, we see him in his M42 uniform, in Bastogne, in the snow, holding his Thompson submachine gun in his hand, grenades clipped to his uniform. Perhaps the editors of the yearbook were trying to tell us something about this guy. So many decades later, when Hollywood comes knocking at their doors, Spears was incredibly hesitant to become involved in the project. And he articulated this to Winters in 2000, just a year before the series Band of Brothers comes out. And after all of this uh, uh, questioning and all this badgering by the producers, Spears says, here we go again. Will this never end? I'm just not interested. Let somebody else be the hero. Dick, you have other guys who can do this. Give this to one of our other people. You know I was never keen on this in the first place. At 80 years old, I have no desire for camera lights action. And this was the attitude that Spears had throughout much of his life. And this, would, this is what lends itself to that air of mystery about him. He did not desire to be in the spotlight, even when Hollywood insisted upon it. But ultimately, he did acquiesce in one regard. At his wife's insistence, who we see here right beside him, he did attend the Band of Brothers premiere in France in June of 2001. This was the first and only time that Spears and Winters saw each other in person since 1945. And they were inseparable during this mini reunion uh, here on Utah Beach. And it serves as a fine representation of how even officers with disparate worldviews and who have different attitudes about their men and their relationships and the nature of killing and the nature of combat, it is these sorts of diverse individuals who make up fighting units. And when they finally had the opportunity to reunite 60 years later, nothing pleased them more than to once again be guarding each other's flanks. Thank you for coming out to my presentation this evening. Jared, fan fantastic talk. We have some time for question and answer. Uh, so I have uh, Hannah back there and myself. Unfortunately, folks online, please do stay on the line and uh, keep listening to the Q&A, but we won't be able to take any, uh, any questions online tonight. I'll try to answer the questions in YouTube. There you go. In real there time. You go. If you're, in, if you want, in person Make a later. comment on YouTube when we post, those up, post that up, and uh, Jared will go in and answer. So, uh, uh, but here in the crowd, we've got uh, a few minutes for questions. Uh, where can we start? Right here. I was wondering about the, um, the Germans, and uh, there was, a, at that point in time, uh, there was a number of German troops, from what I understand and what I've read, that really weren't the uh, elite or elite group of men that started out the war. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering if there was anything that you did in your research or found in your research that would give any indication at all of what type of German soldier they were actually up against. Mm -hmm. uh, this is especially commented on a lot in regard to their experiences in Normandy. And it was uh, speculated uh, by Art de Marzio, one of the men in Spears' platoon, that perhaps the three Germans that they ambushed were conscripts. They weren't professional soldiers. And that's why they were lacking discipline when it came to noise regulation and they were kind of ambivalent to everything that was going on around them. Uh, and so that was most definitely acknowledged. Um, and for that reason, uh, DiMarzio also said, the only Germans that could face off with us on equal terms were Fallschirmjäger troops, German paratroopers. He said everybody else was afraid of us and sometimes didn't want to fight us. And so that's why time and time again, the Fallschirmjäger were brought in to fight the Screaming Eagles. Thank you. Um, my grandfather fought in the 13th Armored um, and saw a good amount of action towards the end of the war. Uh, and one of the things he always noted to me was how religion and his upbringing of religion shaped the way he viewed uh, and approached the war, which oddly, uh, he grew up as a Mennonite. And he viewed it somewhat as a form of rebellion against mm. his upbringing to partake in the war. Can you speak on the influence of religion to both of these men as they 
how they grew up and mm -hmm. how that maybe shaped uh, their perspectives, the way they led, the yes. way they, they approached the killing element yeah. of war. Absolutely. Winters came from old Mennonite stock, uh, you know, here in South Central Pennsylvania. And uh, for all intents and purposes, his mother was very much of a pacifist mindset. And I have no doubt that he went through that same sort of crisis of conscience when he felt obliged to enlist in the, the peacetime army in 1941. Uh, neither of these men were overt in their religious expressions and a lot of their wartime letters in correspondence, but with winners especially, you very much get the sense that he felt that some sort of higher being was looking over him and after him. And that was the only way that he could rationalize his survival. Uh, there's not as much to that extent on uh, Spears's religious outlook. Uh, Congregationalist was the denomination that was marked on his dog tag. Uh, I couldn't find any record of him writing anything about that in his uh, letters. But uh, his stepson, who lives out in Montana, said that uh, likewise, you know, he, he wasn't showy about his faith. He wasn't overtly religious about it. Uh, but there was that sort of spiritual conviction. And when he needed to pray, he did so. All right, we have one right down there. Hi, thank you for this uh, very interesting presentation. Question I've got, uh, I've read a little bit about the two gentlemen in the past, and uh, I, my memory may be faulty, but from what I recall, um, I believe that Spears uh, was uh, became a professional soldier. He mm -hmm, continued yes. to serve, and he ended up retiring from the Army, whereas uh, Winters did not. My understanding is that Winters was recalled for the Korean War, but he... Um, push troops out, essentially train troops back in the States, but he did not uh, deploy to Correct. Korea. Um, do you know why, first off, do you know why Winters didn't go to Korea, why, why he decided he would, didn't want to do that, especially since he was enthusiastic about going to Japan mm -hmm. at the end of the war, um, and why they took the different paths with Spears remaining in, uh, mm -hmm. in the Army and uh, Winters leaving it? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I devote a good bit of uh, space in uh, my book on, on Spears at his post-war career because it's a, a point of curiosity among many. Uh, but in short, uh, Winters got married, he had settled down, he was looking to start a career for himself. Uh, and he, in essence, even though he was still in excellent physical shape, uh, fighting another war by 1950, 1951 was not his cup of tea. Um, he had settled down. He wanted to become a family man, and he had no interest of reviving his military career. Uh, as to Spears, he remained active duty until 1964, uh, fought in Korea, did two additional combat jumps in Korea. So the guy has four combat jumps um, on his chest, very impressive. Uh, he later served as uh, an advisor in Laos during the Laotian Civil War. And I also found some shreds of evidence that suggest that he was involved in covert operations in Saigon in 1965. So that's a whole other story for a whole other presentation. <laughs> uh, excellent presentation, Jared. Thank you. Uh, as an Army judge advocate, I gave a lot of law of war classes. And one of the things that, that troubled me about the Band of Brothers series was the amount of looting that went on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wondered uh, if uh, your research has uncovered uh, the extent to which that's accurately depicted. And, and how do we draw the line between that and what the Russian troops are doing in Ukraine right now with flat screen TVs and name your appliance, it's all going back to Russia. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd be interested to hear your comments on that. Yeah, it, it's hard to say if there's a, a dividing line there in regard to between uh, past and present. Uh, but the looting was substantial and uh, nobody was above it. Uh, Winters himself accumulated a lot of war trophies, and because he was battalion commander by war's end, uh, he shipped home two dozen captured enemy weapons <laughs> back to Pennsylvania. Um, and so uh, nobody was immune to it. Uh, and I, I, I think it all has to do with a matter of perception. Uh, what's the difference between wartime looting and wartime trophies. 
it's all a matter of your perspective and national allegiance. That's the best way that I can answer it. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.